Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. What kind of food policy show would we be without covering one of the most hotly contested issues in the food space over the past year, which is, of course, the labeling of products made with genetically modified organisms, or GMOs for short. So what is that exactly has been going on at the state and federal level around GMO labeling regulations, and what's at stake for industry, as well as our broader food system? How is one tiny northeastern state successful in changing the face of food labels in this country? And moreover... Why this issue over the myriad others that food advocates decided to throw their full weight behind? Joining me today to delve into these questions are Jenny Hopkinson, Colin O'Neill, and Steve Armstrong. Jenny is a food policy and agriculture reporter at Politico and Political Pro. If you have read an article on GMO labeling in the past two years, there's a pretty good chance she wrote it. <laughs> Colin is the agriculture policy director at the Environmental Working Group, a pro-GMO labeling nonprofit dedicated to protecting human health and the environment. And finally, with me here in the studio to provide industry perspective is Steve Armstrong, chief food law counsel at Campbell Soup Company, the first major company to begin disclosing the presence of GMOs in their product products and to ask for a uniform mandatory labeling system at the federal level. Jenny, Colin, Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Jenny. Pleased to be here. All right. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. Okay, so before we kind of dig into some of the juicier food policy questions, I want to I wanna talk about the facts um, first. So, Colin, this first one's for you. Um, despite the groundswell of public support around GMO labeling, there's still a lot of confusion about what a genetically modified organism is. What kind of comes to mind for me first is the, um, the Man on the Street series uh, that Jimmy Kimmel Live did asking people if they have avoid GMOs and what the acronym actually stands for, which kind of pr prompted some amazing um, responses. But um, I'm hoping you can kind of clarify any confusion that some of our listeners may have. So starting with a brief explanation of what is a GMO, when was it developed, and is there any material difference, at least for our purposes on the show, between genetic modification and engineering? Sure. Well, thank you for having me and, and glad to be here. You know, the folks that Jimmy Kimmel interviewed are much like my lovely family members. Every time I go to a family reunion in Ohio, someone inevitably asks me, you know, are seedless watermelons genetically engineered? And it might seem magical that they don't have seeds, but, you know, it's just a process of conventional breeding. So, you know, since the dawn of agriculture, farmers have bred crops to be higher yielding, to be better adapted for different climates and regions, and to have traits like drought tolerance. Mm -hmm. So as opposed to conventional breeding methods, which are still spurring lots of great advances today, genetic engineering is a relatively new technology that allows scientists to manipulate the genetic makeup of a crop or an animal, often in ways that could never happen in nature. So as a result, scientists have been able to engineer soybeans to not die when they're sprayed with a weed killer, 
or engineer a salmon to have antifreeze DNA from an Arctic eel. And uh, about 99% of the GMO crops that are grown here in the U.S. are engineered to either withstand exposure to herbicides or to produce their own uh, insecticidal protein. Okay. So what is the, so just to kind of um, drill down a little bit, um, the difference between genetic modification and traditional crossbreeding is just that, like it just speeds up the process. Um, Genetic modification just speeds up the process, essentially, of what what could happen in nature. So what Vermont and the other states that have passed mandatory labeling laws, as well as the 64 other countries around the world that already require the mandatory labeling of GMOs, they've drawn a clear line in the sand, and many of our federal agencies have as well, that there's a clear difference between what farmers have been doing since the dawn of agriculture, mm-hmm. conventional breeding, and the use of these modern, new genetic engineering techniques, which in many cases can take Mother Nature out of the equation. Okay, so essentially it's like a technology. It is a a new technology, yes. And many feel that it should be regulated as a new technology, not something that is more tried and true. Got it. Um, Jenny, one of, as, I, as I mentioned in the intro, one of your primary beats over the past couple of years has been GMO labeling. Um, can you give us a, an overview on when this issue really started to heat up from a legislative perspective and, and how it began to take shape? Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's been kind of an interesting one to follow. Uh, it really you know, kind of first rose up as, as an issue back in, in 2012, and California consider, considered a, a ballot initiative that would have required labeling on on foods sold in the state. Uh, that failed, albeit very narrowly, and there was a lot of money spent by the food industry to block it. Um, kind of following that, you know, you had a couple of other ballot initiatives in Western states in 2013 and 2014, um, and then, you know, all of a sudden, in well, not all of a sudden, but uh, <laughs> northeastern states started considering laws as well. So Connecticut, Maine, and Vermont are kind of the big three. Um, Connecticut and Maine passed in 2013, though they have a trigger clause so they don't go into effect until a certain number of other states go into effect. And then Vermont passed with no trigger clause in 2014. Um, and that, and the implementation date on Vermont is, is July 1st, 2016. And so, so that kind of spurred a lot of action in Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there was a lot of, there was kind of talk before then, you know, there were efforts at bills, but as, as it became very apparent that Vermont was going to pass, you know, kind of things kicked into gear in Washington, at least in the House. Um, and the House passed uh, a bill in 2015 that would have preempted states. Mm-hmm. It was a bit of an w- industry wish list. Um, and I'm sure Colin will correct me if I get any of my dates wrong on this. But, um, and, uh, and, then in, uh, and then kind of the Senate didn't do anything, um, and, and not for the lack of, of trying by opponents to GMO labeling. Um, and so finally, the very beginning of this year, uh, well, last month, in fact, there was an effort in the Senate Agriculture Committee, uh, led by Republicans and one or two Democrats, to get a state preemption bill that would, would just quite simply preempt Vermont's law and give the industry two years to put in place kind of an electronic labeling system, or then, you know, uh, Congress could go back and take up the issue. That that failed, <laughs> and and now I think there's a lot of kind of uh, circling of the wagons in Washington and figuring out what to do next. Because in essence, Vermont's law would be the de facto national standard by which all yeah. companies have to 
essentially abide by. And okay, okay. So and then I, so Steve, as my as my um, industry representative here, um, I want to talk about kind of Campbell's reaction to what has been going on um, in the GMO space. So um, they were an early adopter of GMO labeling and calling for a national standard. What is this? What does this kind of commitment mean for Campbell's, and and what is entailed specifically in executing it? Well, uh, Jenny, it's a real pleasure to be here, and I, I welcome the opportunity to talk about this subject because it's a critically important one uh, for our economy, for our farmers, and for uh, for consumers. Um, I think fundamentally what Campbell wants to accomplish with uh, pushing for mandatory national GMO labeling is transparency. Mm -hmm. We want consumers to understand and, and accept this technology and, and to really uh, understand completely the role it plays uh, not only in their lives so much, but in the lives of the farmers that bring food to their to their table. Uh, you know, Colin is absolutely right. I mean, in the greater scheme of things, this is a relatively new technology. But it's important to remember that it's been around for about a generation. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not as if it is unregulated. Quite the contrary. Yes, there is a, quote-unquote, voluntary consultation process. But there's not a GMO out there on the market that hasn't undergone a rigorous review by three federal agencies, the Department of Agriculture, the FDA, and the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, and Colin is also absolutely right that um, the agencies, as far as labeling goes, prefer the term genetic engineering. Mm -hmm. But there's a problem with that because the very term genetic engineering, according to the consumer research that we've done, tends to scare consumers. Mm -hmm. makes them uh, imagine all sorts of things about GMOs that, you know, quite honestly, are just simply not true. Uh, they prefer, and our consumer research has shows, shown this, the straight talk of, uh, hey, your food was made with GMOs. And, uh, you know, irrespective of what might happen on Capitol Hill or what bill might eventually get signed into law, we are going to continue our research. We've started a dialogue with the FDA, and we are going to try to find the most transparent and effective communication for consumers uh, about uh, GMOs. And, you know, it's early days, but I think it's going to be a combination of things. It's going to be something very, very plain, direct, and straight on the label, along with a reference to uh, a website where consumers can learn more. And speaking for Campbell, mm -hmm. we've already begun talking in some detail about our use of GMO ingredients on www.whatsinmyfood.com. So um, we're looking forward to it. As I said, we've already started a dialogue with, uh, with FDA, and I think it's critically important that uh, consumers understand the extent to which American agriculture has embraced this technology. Mm -hmm. You know, if you talk to farmers, they will say, don't consumers understand the extent to which we've reduced our pesticide use? We've reduced our herbicide use. Mm -hmm. And just very quickly, a really stunning example of it from my perspective is that the sugar beet farmers have drastically reduced their reliance on herbicides and weed killers by introducing uh, genetic engineering of the sugar beet seed. Mm -hmm. They've gone from using 13 different weed killers to a quart of weed killer for an acre of, uh, of sugar beets. Or if you can imagine... Uh, a half spray bottle of a 41% solution of the of the or of the weed killer over a football field. So you're talking about the positive effects of of, of the some of the technologies that's been developed. Colin, I I anticipate you might want to want to um, follow up to that. I don't know if you want to weigh in. 
Well, you know, I think that we have seen um, some negative aspects to the, the technology in, in the field, um, and that's largely been in the form of herbicide resistance. You know, just as bacteria can develop resistance to antibiotics when overused, uh, overuse of the herbicide glyphosate on genetically engineered crops um, can cause weed resistance. And now we have about over 70 million acres of farmland that are infested with these herbicide-resistant weeds. And the only way to deal with that is either go back to really intensive tilling or turn to older, more toxic herbicides. And that's unfortunately what, what many in the industry, the biotech industry, are doing. They're now engineering crops to withstand exposure to some of these older, more toxic herbicides like 2,4-D. And so, you know, I think that uh, certainly that should be part of the conversation. But, you know, frankly, we believe strongly that all consumers have a right to know what's in their food and how it's produced. And, you know, one of the common myths that we often hear is that we can't label GMOs because they're not dangerous. But we don't label dangerous foods in this country. We take dangerous foods off the shelf. Right. I could not agree more with, uh, with Colin. You know, we only market and sell safe foods. And on the issue of labeling, I think Campbell has moved well beyond the notion that uh, just because there's no material difference in the food that there's no need to uh, label uh, that for the use of, of GMOs. Mm -hmm. There's no question that American consumers these days are very, very interested in, in not just what's in the food, but how the food was made, where it came from, and how the environment was treated. Right. So the reality is that GMOs don't really affect the, the food, and in many cases, like sugar from GMO sugar beets, the, the genetically altered material is, is removed in processing, so it never reaches you. But nonetheless, it's important to, to be, be transparent. transparent with consumers. So what, So what? in addition to transparency, what are you hoping that by li the labeling of your products at Campbell's, what, what will change? Like, um, will you... Will will you look to change your sourcing practices? You know, like is this just a first step? So we're going to label it, and then eventually we're going to move away from, uh, you know, crops that are genetically oh, modified. I, I or this question, I've been asked this question many times. <laughs> or you our, shift your our product our portfolio. Company, like, our company's yeah. taken a very very clear position mm -hmm. that by calling for labeling, we are uh, categorically not calling for an end to use of uh, GMOs. Look, Jenna. Campbell Soup Company makes food for the masses. Mm -hmm. We rely on the uh, uh, vegetables and the commodity crops that are produced by ag agriculture in mass in this country. We can't put out our products without having the benefit of the products of, of, of agriculture. So I've said time and again that it's just impracticable for us to move away from this technology. Mm -hmm. Rather, what's important is for the consumers to understand it and understand the role that it plays in bringing uh, food to their table and to understand that it's safe. And I just want to add, all of those issues that Colin uh, talked about, mm -hmm. the farmers are intensely aware of those issues and are addressing them almost on a daily basis. So, And um, Colin, I... I want to, um, I'm going to turn to you next, and, but Jenny, I haven't forgotten about you. <laughs> so thanks for bearing with me. There's so many questions, but um, Colin, I'm going to take give this to you first. Um, I can think of like 20 different labels off the top of my head that I would like to see a standardized, you know, standardized at the federal level, at, at, you know, to some degree. Um, and 
and yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm curious about what are some of the reasons why EWG has pushed for GMO labeling specifically, and to what extent do you think this is um, this is like a, a proxy for a more disruptive overhaul to our national uh, food system? Well, you know, as I said, EWG stands with consumers, and we, we strongly believe that the consumers have a fundamental right to know what's in their food and, and how it's produced. But honestly, this has been a democratic effort that uh, I think consumers saw that 64 countries around the world already give their consumers this type of information. And in fact, many U.S. companies are manufacturing products here in the U.S. and labeling them for export. And, you know, I think many consumers asked, well, hey, why not us? So, you know, we, we've been um, uh, glad to be part of this movement and, and stand with consumers, uh, business leaders, chefs, and farmers who support the right to know. Um, but, you know, a lot of this began in the states. And I think our job now is to uh, ensure that Congress listens to the will of the people. Um, and, and we think it's high time that, that the Senate lead and, and pass a national mandatory labeling bill that's uh, simple and, uh, and makes sense for the average consumer. And Jenna, I couldn't agree more. And I just want to hasten to add that Campbell Soup Company mm-hmm. absolutely supports not only a consumer's right to know, again, not only what's in the food, mm-hmm. but how it's made. You know, I think you might have uh, raised a concern about a slippery slope of process labeling. Oh, I've got a, I've got a question about that. That's You're, coming later. Right <laughs> uh, love to weigh, love to weigh in on that. It's something yeah. you have to face up to. Yeah, yeah, Jenny, what do you, what do you think? Do you think this is a proxy issue for a more disruptive overhaul? I mean, I, I think. That is certainly the concern and why, you know, kind of the big food industry lobby, the Grocery Manufacturers Association, has, has kind of pushed, pushed back. Um, you know, and, and to, to a point, you can, you can see their arguments. I mean, why, why, you know, currently we're letting the second smallest state in the country, a state of 60 or 600,000 people, yeah. um, you know, set, set de facto labeling policy for the rest of the country. And, and you know, if, if it's GMOs this time, is it going to be, you know, sustainably sourced cocoa next time? Or there's any number of things. Um, you know, federal law is that we, we label for health and safety risks. Um, that's mostly what FDA does. Um, so it's, it's, you know, yes, it's, it's kind of how we move forward. And, and I think... I think there have been a lot of good points made about transparency, and really what this comes down to is consumers want transparency from their food companies, not necessarily about GMOs. I mean, if, if you ask consumers what they want to see on the label, it's a very low percentage that say, I want GMO labeling. But if, if, they, if you ask a consumer, do you want GMOs labeled in your food, it's about you know 90 plus percent. So, so I think I think it comes down to transparency and, and how much space is on a package and you know kind of what what comes next and and I don't I don't think there has been necessarily uh, you know a, a good a good thought of, of how to address that and so it's somewhat turned into this proxy war on GMO labeling. And uh, Jenny, this is Steve. Real quick, but uh, what do you think it's going to take Congress to act? I mean, how much of a patchwork? Two states? Three states? Three yeah. subjects, four well, subjects. That would be a question for the, uh, that I would ask. That I would ask for the lawyer. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. well, I, I, I tend to. Th- a, it's a it's a very good question. I mean, 
You know, Pat Roberts, who is the uh, the head of the Senate Agriculture Committee, and he crafted the bill in the Senate. And basically, you, you need something to get through the Senate, um, and then the House is, is assumed to just kind of sign on. Now, that the House will not sign on to mandatory on-package labeling, from, from what I'm hearing. So, like, that's a problem. But, I mean, you know, companies are already complying with Vermont. It's not just Campbell at this point. It's ConAgra. It's Kellogg. It's Mars. Mars. Um, it's General Mills. And so, so, and those are, you know, a good chunk of your biggest food companies. Of your GMA. Yeah, they are all GMA members, um, yeah. or as far as I know they are. So it, it's, I mean, uh, I know that Senate leaders, excuse me, Senate agriculture leaders want to, to tackle this. Um, you know, the, the top Democrat on the committee, uh, Senator Debbie Stabenow from Michigan, said even this morning that, you know, she, she wants to see a national solution. Um, it's just whether or not they can agree on it. And, and thus far, they haven't been able to. And it's, it's actually not, it is to a point a Democrat versus a Republican issue. Um, but it's also, I mean, there are farm state Democrats who cross the aisle to support the bill and say, let's, let's pass this. And then there are also states' rights Republicans, um, you know, who said, no, we're, we're not going to support this because you're taking away a right of a state. Um, and so, so I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how many states it's going to take to pass it. You know, right now it seems like most state standards are, are the ones that are being proposed are very similar. Um, you know, so it's kind of like, well, Vermont's standard would probably be whatever, you know, Massachusetts, which seems close to, to putting its own standard in place, would be. But then the question becomes, well, you know, a law that passes is great, but then it can be amended a couple of years down the road, and then what happens? Um, so I think I think there's there's questions about that. Um, you know, I, it's a good question. How many yeah. uh, you know, take Jenny, you asked for, act, but I, I don't know that one. You yeah. asked for a lawyer's perspective, yeah. and, and my perspective is that it is going to take at least one state to pass pretty contradictory laws, or to we get to the point where it's going to be impossible to comply with one state versus the other. Mm-hmm. Then Congress really is going to have to act. That's what our national you know uh, federation is for. Right. Uniformity on an issue like this. Right. Um, I will. Okay. I want Colin. I want. I want to um, turn to you, but because um, I would love the kind of advocacy perspective on the on the slippery slope argument that you hear so much applied to a lot of different kind of food issues when we're talking about regulation. So, um, but first we got to take a really quick break um, and hear from our sponsors, and we will be right back. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. Have you listened to A Taste of the Past? It's a show devoted to connecting our current food world with its storied past. Host and culinary historian Linda Palaccio welcomes chefs, scientists, authors, scholars, and revolutionaries into the studio to discuss food culture and history from around the globe. 
Have you seen the culture of food change over the past 25, 30 years? It's been incredible. Linda covers content ranging from the history of black chefs in the White House to behavioral psychology and the evolution of Italian food in America. You can listen to A Taste of the Past anytime on HeritageRadioNetwork.org or on iTunes and Stitcher. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Jenny Hopkinson from Politico, Colin O'Neill from the Environmental Working Group, and Steve Armstrong from Campbell Soup about GMO labeling. Colin, before the break, I promise to turn to you about the to weigh in on the kind of slippery slope uh, argument uh, around regulations and and what happens if we kind of. Uh, you know, get get a patchwork of different kinds of labeling laws um, as a result of what's happening in Vermont. So, do you have uh, your thoughts on that? Well, you know, thankfully, uh, the state legislators, which have so far driven the efforts to pass mandatory labeling laws in Maine and Connecticut and Vermont, have been able to pick up the phone and call each other and compare notes. So uh, there is no problematic or unworkable patchwork quilt of state labeling laws on the books right now. Um, But, you know, understanding the realities, and, and we certainly appreciate the role that Campbell's has played in driving this conversation at the federal level. You know, EWG uh, has, has long called for the establishment of a national uniform mandatory labeling standard. And one of the reasons for that is that we fundamentally believe that consumers in Arizona should have the same right to know as consumers in Vermont. And, um, and there shouldn't be a can of soup that's different in those two states uh, if they contain the same ingredients. So, you know, we think that a national mandatory labeling standard is the most sensible approach. Um, but understanding that, you know, we have, uh, we're thankful that, that so far there is not an unworkable patchwork uh, quilt at the state level. Um, is there a way that the Vermont law is written um, that you can tell the type of modification, Colin, that ingredients are sub- subjected to? So c- could you tell by, by the labeling proposals um, that you've, that any proposals that you've seen if a seed was modified for insecticide or herbicide resistance, or does it even really matter? Well, so, um, you know, there, there's one important um, distinction here, and, and that's the distinction between front-of-package uh, voluntary labeling claims mm-hmm. and then back-of-package pan- mandatory disclosures. And so what Vermont and the other states have done and what's called for on Capitol Hill is the back-of-package disclosure that would just simply say produced with genetic engineering. Um, There are some other proposals that have been put forth in the Senate that would simply allow companies to use a symbol or put an asterisk next to a genetically engineered ingredient with a key at the bottom. Um, And then there's nothing preventing companies from... Uh, advertising on the front of their package um, any of the beneficial traits that might come with those GMOs. So uh, the fact of the matter is just we haven't seen that come to market yet. So, Jenny, uh, you know, the simple answer to your, to your question is uh, uh, that um, you, you know, no, the Vermont law doesn't require that we be transparent about uh, uh, why GMOs are used or how they're used, and, and that would be a pretty uphill climb because of, you know, what I tried to share earlier, the manner in which GMOs are actually used in the field by farmers where they have their their benefit. Uh, There typically is not going to be a lot enough label space, which is why uh, we've adopted the solution of of putting a link to our website where we comply with the Vermont law, and we Uh say partially produced with genetic engineering, which is applicable uh, across our, our portfolio, the part effect by Vermont. We direct consumers to www.whatsinmyfood.com 
for an understanding of how genetic engineering affects how GMOs affect their products. And I think that's, that's the answer going forward, ultimately. Um, Jenny, so if, if uh, labeling does, in fact, eventually end up reducing consumption of foods containing GMOs, um, which I don't even, you know, I don't know. I'm not saying that's likely, but if it does, what, what are some of the potential repercussions for our food system, um, both, both, both good or bad and bad that you have kind of, uh, talked about in your writing? Well, I mean, if, if, and it's a very big, if, um, you know, labeling results in, in kind of consumers fleeing from, from, um, you know, kind of GMO ingredients. I mean, there are alternatives. I mean, First of all, you know, GMOs are largely, as been discussed, in, in, you know, it's basically sugar, corn products, and, and soybean products. And so that's mostly your processed food. So, I mean, beyond even getting into organic food or, you know, non-GMO certified, which there's private certifications that'll do that, you know, there, there's also just, you know, if, if you don't, if you kind of want to avoid GMO, GMOs, you know, grab a an apple instead of a certain cereal bar type thing. Um, and so, I mean, the options do exist. I, you know, I think the some in the food industry are very concerned that, you know, they're going to have to start reformulating and trying to find GMO-free or, excuse me, non-GMO kind of corn, sh- soy, and sugar. Um, I mean, those, those exist abroad. Um, you know, there are supplies of them. They are, you know, potentially more expensive just because, the vast majority of, of what we already produce, produce. Here at least, um, and and in South America and kind of other big grain-producing countries are are genetically modified. I mean, so you know that's the argument that prices could increase, but but again, it just it depends on consumers fleeing from GMO labels, and I think it'll be really telling. I mean, Campbell's was the first company to to speak to this, but it was the first company to come out and say, you know, we're going to label, you know, and it'll be really interesting. I mean, I don't know if the numbers exist now or in the, you know, in six months to see if sales are down, to see if it really has changed anything, um, you know, and, and because it's, you know, if, if it were going to, I think companies like Campbell's and, and you know, ConAgra would, would reformulate over just labeling, and that's not been the trend. So, so I don't think yeah. there's yeah. much concern. It doesn't seem like there's that much concern that consumers are going to flee from GMO ingredients. You know, uh, Jenny, it's interesting. Our consumer research has really indicated just that, that consumers that love our brands, that uh, love our products, remain loyal to them when we're straight with them about uh, how, how they're made. And I think the more transparent we are, the more accepting we are. And I think that's critically important because the current profile of use of GMO is just... It's only the beginning of the possibility. I mean, there is a vitamin A enhanced GMO rice that could do tremendous uh, benefit for the eyesight of uh, uh, golden kids. rice. Yeah, kids in in the Asian region, in the sub-Saharan Africa uh, countries that uh, have serious uh, problems feeding their population are embracing this technology. And Campbell is hopeful that by being transparent, consumers will better understand this technology and the promise that it holds. Colin, um, from the Environmental Working Group perspective, is the hope that um, labeling will, will in fact, increase biodiversity in, in, some, in some capacity, even though that seems like a uphill battle in the U.S. specifically, or is the monoculture crop 
cat out of the bag. <laughs> a train has left well, the station. <laughs> um, so at, at EWG, the farm bill is always in our sights and always a conversation um, that we have and, and, and that members of Congress have here in Washington, D.C. So, you know, I think that one of the important issues about GMO labeling is that you know, I think m- many consumers uh, know or have a feeling that their food system has changed, but they don't know just how, to what extent. And, you know, we think that through labeling, that will help illustrate the extent to which the food system really has changed in this country. And in many cases, it's changed without the input of consumers. I think that's one of the reasons that we've seen such an overwhelming call for mandatory GMO labeling across the country. And, you know, we feel that uh, more informed citizens can uh, make for a more informed debate about our food system in this country. All right. Um, Well, I've got one final question, and Jenny, I want to start with you on this one. Um, One of the criticisms that I have heard um, about those interested in making changes to our food system is that the, quote, movement can be disorganized (laughs) at times. Um, So I'm wondering, in your opinion, what was it about the way this issue was tackled by advocates that made it successful, despite the millions of dollars spent um, trying to defeat and appeal the Vermont law? I mean, I, I think I think GMOs have, I don't know if benefited as a movement, but, but I think part of the success is because it just sounds scary. You know, if, if you know, a genetically modified anything, and this, yeah. is, this is food, this is what moms feed their kids, and, and it, you know, it, it sounds really scary, you yeah. know, whereas other things in the food system don't, don't have that, or, you know, they aren't inherent in how we produce food, which now, you know, biotechnology and, and GMOs are in, inherent in how we produce food. That, that, that is the system we have. Um, and so, you know, if, if you're looking at kind of artificial ingredients and, and chemicals, you know, I think there's a little bit more of an understanding that that's just added in a coloring and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, GMOs, genetically modified organisms, it, it does sound scary. And, and again, it, it also, I think, it is something very much kind of linked to processed foods, and of course there's a big, you know, pushback right now on, on processed foods to an extent. Um, and so I, I think, I mean, I think it's kind of those factors, um, but I mean, it, it has been incredibly effective as, as, as a movement, um, you know, because this is, this is the one we're talking about. And <laughs> this is it. It clearly works. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And if I could add, it may sound scary. Mm-hmm. But it's not. And that's why Campbell is committed to being transparent about this issue. And that's why, the, you know, the research that we did on genetic engineering, it sounds scary. It's not straight talk. And straight talk is what we need on the label. Right. Um, Colin, what, what are your thoughts on, why, uh, on how this issue was tackled that led it to be successful? Well, as I said, this has really been a democratic effort. We've seen, um, you know, mom and dad at the local level mm-hmm. end up with, food businesses, with chefs, with retailers, um, from big to small, you know, I think that it, it really has been a democratic effort. And you know, um, I do think that this will uh, cause um, some major ripple effects moving forward into addressing some of the other issues that, that have to uh, be dealt with in the upcoming farm bill, whether it's farm subsidies or, or ethanol and biofuels. You know, I think more people are engaged in critical food policy issues uh, more than ever, and, and we think that that's a good thing. 
Absolutely. I, I think we probably all agree um, on this call. Okay, I'm going to have to unfortunately leave it there for today. Um, I want to thank our guests so very much for joining us, Jenny Hopkinson, Colin O'Neill, and Steve, Steve Armstrong. Um, this, for our listeners, is the last episode of the season, but we will be back in a few short weeks with the start of the spring-summer season, so be sure to tune in then. A big thanks to our sponsors for your gener- generous support, um, and of course to our show engineer, David Tedashore. Our show is produced by myself um, and Kim Kessler, my brilliant co-host, and our intern is Austin Brynjarski, who is currently um, working on his finalizing his thesis, so I want to just wish him good luck um, <laughs> now that I have the chance. Austin, we're thinking about you. Uh, show music is by the talented Tim Archer. Our show is available on Heritage Radio Network's website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.